Hey everyone, this is Jason Van Ruler with another episode of the OK What's Next podcast. This week I'm talking to Courtney Vrablick. She's the executive director of The Store in Nashville, Tennessee. And The Store is really cool. It's a year-round free grocery store. And Courtney just had great insight about the people that she works with, the mission that she's part of and her passion for that mission. She also has a wonderful sense of humor and was super fun. So I know you're going to love this episode. Check it out. Today, we are talking with Courtney, fascinating person. Courtney, thank you so much for being on today. Jason, thanks for having me. Yeah, I was so impressed with your story and just kind of what you do. I'm not sure if everybody knows about that. So can you tell us just a little bit about who you are and kind of what you're up to? So I am, and the way that we kind of connected is I am the executive director of a place called The Store, which is a nonprofit in Nashville, Tennessee, started by uh, Brad and Kim Paisley. And it is a pay less grocery store. And it's exactly what it sounds like. We are set up as a grocery store for families to come in and get the food supplies that they need. And there is no cash transactions whatsoever. It is based off of, of that family's need. And the idea is creating a space like this creates a safe area where families get to choose what it is that they want to eat, choose what's best for their family instead of the standard model of most food pantries where they're given a box and they kind of just have to make do with whatever is in that box. We would like to provide an opportunity for families to just have a safe shopping experience that helps them get through financial difficulties. I've never really thought much about that, but that makes a lot of sense. Like if you're already in that position, it's difficult enough. And then you're kind of just handed something. I mean, which is sure there's something nice about that, but how do people take that? I mean, does it kind of empower them a little bit, getting some say in what they're getting or, or how has that affected people? Well, there's multiple aspects and benefits to the whole concept. First of all, there's the dignity. And even in the way that we're named, the store, it's a very ubiquitous term. So if you're saying, I'm going down to such and such food pantry, there's a stigma involved in that versus you're loading the kids in the car and you're like, hey, we're going to the store totally normalizes this experience and doesn't perpetuate a stigma, you can add it into a conversation and nobody's going to think twice of it. Because obviously there are, there are social stigmas and, and whatnot that are involved in um, nutritional assistance. On top of which, one of the aspects of personal shopping is the fact that if you have family members who have food allergies or sensitivities. I have an autistic daughter. So this is very pertinent to me. There are certain things that she just won't eat. Is there anything wrong with those things? No, absolutely not. But I know that she's not going to eat it. And if I have that in my home, it's just going to go to waste. So it's not only what you know your family's going to eat, what you know how to prepare, but it's also reducing the waste. If you got a food box and it just has like four bottles of ketchup, two bottles of syrup, and you know, nothing terribly useful. Because sometimes that happens because it's based off of what food pantries receive. That's what they can give. So if you're given something and you know you can't use it, then it perpetuates a cycle of waste. Those things end up in the garbage and nobody gets to use them. So there's an efficiency aspect of it. And then it's just the matter of we want to revolutionize how we perceive food insecurity because it was an existing problem. And then we jumped into the pandemic and now people are experiencing it for the first time. People who never thought that they would 
be suffering these kinds of financial hardships. You know, they're, they're well-educated. They had a great job. You know, they were providing for their families. And now for the first time, they're experiencing food insecurity and they don't have the resources to go to a regular grocery store. And so this helps people navigate these circumstances for the first time. And to do it in a way, like you said, that has some dignity and allows them some ability to choose. Because I would suspect some of it is kind of a bummer when people take stuff, but then if they don't use it, then it's just kind of a really long process to throw something away, right? Yeah, it is. There's something like $40 billion worth of food waste within the United States. And so really it comes down to the logistics of how we get food to people you know, within the industry behind the scenes, those of us who are involved in the food supply chain, this has become a, a major conversation because there's an existing poverty and existing food shortage crisis. And then on top of that, we have the food. You know, the United States is able to produce copious amounts of food. Unfortunately, it's not getting to where it needs to go. And so it ends up being wasted. And so we could solve major hunger issues if we could eliminate some of these processes and institute new ones. I'm sure that logistically, though, is really difficult sometimes to kind of figure that part out. Well, historically, once we stepped into the era of the supermarket instead of the local grocery chain, and that kind of perpetuated big agriculture, this is where I nerd out. Already, I'm, this is good. I'm in. This is where I, I totally nerd out because I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. I grew up in a farming community. And throughout the 80s and 90s, as big agriculture and monoculture started to take over, those family businesses, those family farms got wiped out because they couldn't financially, it, it, it didn't make sense to stay in the farming industry. So it, it changed the entire nature of how, you know, my background, how I grew up, what our community existed on, because my family's business was feed store. So agriculture and providing for family farms was how my father put food on the table. Wow. So, I mean, they had that direct relationship where if one is down, so is the other. Exactly. And so as big agriculture came in and bought out these farms and started producing, you know, monocultures were just growing cucumbers, were just growing tomatoes, were just growing corn. It eliminated the way that local food got to local markets and it became major industry. And so then we have these supermarkets and they subsist on major suppliers instead of it going directly to the community that it's grown in. And so it changes the resources and it changes the way that we navigate our food pathways, which is why I'm excited when farmers markets pop up and local growers. And it's becoming a big thing in Tennessee where there's farmers that are growing these small heritage breeds and they're bringing back those heirloom concepts of farming. That's really fantastic. I'm with you being from South Dakota, have experienced kind of what you're talking about, right? That same time frame and just how family farms became a lot less because they just couldn't make it. And so yeah. that had to be hard. I'm just so curious, what does food mean to you? So, I mean, I hear that this, it's kind of a thread even running through your family, this agriculture and food and that sort of thing. Is that important to you or is it more important for different reasons or how does that work? My kids tease me all the time because when I say food, they know that that means love. In fact, it's like written in the kitchen on this big chalkboard. And it's true. That was one of the themes in my childhood and then in my early professional career. Food was a way to navigate 
and express love and compassion. And I grew up with grandmothers that cooked these huge meals for farmhands. And I come from a really large family, six on one side, seven aunts and uncles on the other, you know, that's that makes thing. for an awesome Christmas. That's great. I have stories. Um, <laughs> and because we were in a small community, like I went to school and church and, you know, most of my social sphere, I was also related to. And so it was sounds idealistic. Anybody who has a large family will tell you there's pros and cons to that whole thing. But it was, it was all centered around the meals and getting together as family and sharing that food. That was one of the few healthy dynamics within the family because there were all sorts of other traumas and abuse and addictions and aspects within the family. But that was the one thing that was like foundationally, we could all get together and have a meal. That was a major thing growing up that my mom made sure that we all sat down at the end of the day and had a family meal. That was huge. There wasn't anything that should come in the way of us all sitting down and making eye contact. And she made that a priority. And then when I left home, I ended up getting into the food industry. Just, you know, I started out as a short order cook and everybody's had their stint as a barista, you know, that sort of thing. But I got into pastry and baking and ended up being able to work as a pastry chef and especially in campus dining with Aramark. So I was the executive pastry chef at Middle Tennessee State for about five years. That was a fantastic opportunity, really high volume. And then I worked with Duquesne University for a while in Pittsburgh and then offshoot into like smaller kitschy high-end Baking. I knew I liked you. You're a pastry chef. This is, we're going to get, I mean, I like to eat pastry. So this is wonderful. This is. Well, but see, that was the best thing about being in pastry because nobody eats dessert is unhappy. That's true. Like, I got to finish their experience. Like you have a meal. Okay. It's great. Then you get dessert or, you know, you get that little sweet bit at the end. And it's like, I get to be that little cherry on the top, that little happy that thought. That is such a great way to look at it. I've never thought about that, but no one is disgruntled after dessert. No, that's not how that works. No one's like, I would like to send this chocolate sundae back. That doesn't yeah, ever happen. Yeah. No. This chocolate pie, I'm just, I'm miserable eating it. It's, I suffer. That is good. I, if I ever want to get into a job where it's really people love me, that sounds like a great avenue. This is, this it's, is good. It, you know, and it's, it's always good therapy too. Like I, I always say bad days make good bread because you can just you can go into the kitchen and beat the crap out of some dough and that makes it better. And then, you know. Better day. It's good therapy. I didn't grow up in a farming family, but my wife did. And so just that structure of like, we're going to have a meal, sometimes multiple meals a day, but we're going to have at least one where it's like, this is going to unify the family. Like, I don't care what else is happening. We have to do this. And I suppose in, in the work you're doing now, I mean, you're kind of giving that opportunity to other people who might not have gotten it otherwise, right? Just to kind of pull their family together. It's really important to me, not only from my professional feelings about food and my understanding of where food comes from, but also because I spent 10 years utilizing SNAP and WIC benefits. So I understand our customers on the level of what is it like to have to need to use those supports and assistance and what's available in those programs. And also just the way that people view you when they find out that you are utilizing those services. Again, it comes back to that stigma and dignity issues. I grew up in a family where if there wasn't enough to meet the bills, my dad would go out and pick up another job. 
And there were times in my childhood that he was working two and three jobs and my mom was working from home before that was even a thing. Like she was way ahead of her time. I didn't know that we were poor until I was in high school. And then to get a little bit older and have my own family and my own kids and have to sign up for WIC and have to sign up for SNAP benefits and use an EBT card, hear the comments from people behind you in the checkout line because they felt entitled to make comments about what it was that you were purchasing because they felt like they were paying for your food. That had to be so hard. Well, and especially if you had your kids with you. And so I would start grocery shopping in the middle of the night just to avoid, because my anxiety would get really, really peaked from the whole thing because I was also processing. It was breaking down my understanding of the stereotypes that I had grown up with, with who it is that uses these programs there was a tie between poverty and your morality. If you were a really good person, you would work harder and you wouldn't need these things. Yeah, it's, it's character logical, right? Where it, you're a bad person or there's something wrong with you, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Yeah, and so you get into that mindset where you almost criminalize poverty instead of looking at the structures that enable poverty and perpetuate poverty. So there was that aspect of things. And so like, that was very diminishing to me because I had failed is really what it was that I had felt like I'd failed as a mom and as an adult, but then there's so much that got tied into it, breaking down my understanding of, cause I grew up, you know, and you probably remember like with Reagan and the concept of welfare Queens, we had these racialized ideas of what poverty was and who was using benefit programs. And when I got into the system and started analyzing it. It's like 70% of the people who need SNAP benefits pre-COVID are white working class families that are just like everybody else. So I had to educate myself in order to heal myself, really. I needed to dig in and break down my preconceived notions of things. And then that enabled me to, once I was able to dig my way out, turn around and say, okay, now how do I help the people around me so that other moms and dads that are stuck in these situations don't have to feel like this again? And so as I look at the operations within the store and how we set up programs and checkout and where the food is and what kind of food is being ordered, I want to make sure that it's with that idea in mind. If it was me and I had my kids in the car and we pulled up to the store, what would that experience be like? How would they feel? How would I feel? Is it a good experience? Is it a positive experience? Do they feel welcomed? Do they feel safe? And, you know, that consistency of service because they are a customer, not a client. What I so appreciate is you went through it and you still went back to help others. Nothing against people that don't do that, but I mean, I just think that's kind of the exception rather than the rule, right? I think most people would try to dig out and never go back. And for you, you're kind of digging out and saying, well, actually, how do I make it better? You know, knowing what it's like, how do I improve this for people? You know, it was really a kind of a, I want to say a freak thing, how I got into this position. Because after I'd gotten divorced, I went back to work and I was actually working with Amazon. And I never really actually intended to stay with the company. It was one of those, I had been a stay-at-home mom for eight years, three kids, just trying to get to the day. And I didn't have more pertinent, immediate work experience on my resume. And I knew that I needed to be able to find ways to provide for my kids and provide some sort of financial stability. And so 
I started working with Amazon. I started out as an hourly associate part-time and worked my way up. And so about a year ago, November, I had just taken another promotion. So I was salaried stock management, working four days a week. It's pretty cushy. And yeah, it was nice. And I saw an ad, a job listing for the store. They were looking for an operations manager. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. The pay wasn't anything different than what it was that I was making. I knew from friends that worked in nonprofit that the insurance wasn't going to be as good. You know, the benefits, that's right. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I kept dropping it into conversations with friends and coworkers and stuff like, you know, like, like that's got to be a really great concept. You know, and it's that whole thing of like, if something sparks you, if something creates that, oh my gosh, fireworks kind of sense of that, oh, in your gut, like you have to investigate it, figure out what it is that has piqued that interest in you. What about that situation or that concept? makes you feel alive. And so I threw in a resume and I was like, okay, well, you know, at least I did my part. I followed through with my scratch the itch. I, you know, who knows now, but I I did something. I took the opportunity as it was presented to me and, you know, I'll just carry on. And I got a call back and I got an interview and I actually got five interviews. And (laughs) why only five? Why not six? I mean, that seems a little it's a little slim, so, but no, no judgment over here. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, anybody who has to work with committees is laughing because they completely understand what sure. this means. Five um, is a nice number. <laughs> well, so what had happened is I went in, I applied for the ops position, which would have been floor management. And they called me back two hours later and said, so we actually have this opening. We don't have an executive director right now. And we were wondering if you would consider that position instead. And I said, are you crazy? <laughs> Here's all of my experience. My experience is ops. It's the floor. It's the food management. I've never been a director or the boss for anything. Like, I don't have any of that. And they're like, but you have this story and you have these experiences and you understand food and you understand that hunger is a symptom of a larger issue. And like, you get it. And they're like, we would like to walk with you through the processes of how to become an executive director, but we want you to be able to use this position to talk about your experiences so that you can make other people. So it was really the board being able to have a bigger vision and an understanding of how to grow another person, because these are all industry leaders and successful professional individuals and they were able to take a look at me and say this person has more to say let's give her the opportunity to do it and so that was very generous on their part i am grateful every day for it even on the crazy days well i think there was little risk for them i mean after talking to you they had to know like this is going to be a good thing it's it's going to be a learning process but it's going to be a good thing it's an investment on their part in order to train somebody up the tools of everything. But in my brain, it was still a little old me. And you're always your worst critic. You're always the person that, you know, you you look at something that you create or you make or you do, and you're like, oh, well, I, I definitely could have done that better. And so- Can't relate. I've never done no, that. But yes, no. I, hear that, I hear that people do that. I, I've heard that <laughs> happens sometimes. I have a younger sister who's a performer. 
And she is just vivacious and bubbly. And you could throw her into a room of total strangers and everyone will be her best friend by the end of it. And she has this ability of saying, look, I am good at this. I have these skills. I am this person. I have these talents. And there isn't any reason for me to hide them or be dishonest or sell myself short. Like, that's not my gift. And so, like, I'm constantly, like, ringing her up and being like, hey. What would you right. say in this, yeah, in this situation? <laughs> just just asking. I mean, out of curiosity. Coach your socially awkward sister through another scenario. Okay, please. <laughs> this is great. But, but they saw you. And, I mean, what I love about your story is, like, it goes all the way through probably the progression you're trying to walk people through who are coming in, right? Is yes. your story is one of struggle at times, but it's also a beautiful story, even in those moments and then of growth and, and just kind of realizing some of this potential. I bet that's kind of what you're going for, right? I mean, with all of this. Yeah. But, you know, also within that, looking at what it was, like how much of what I did was me lifting me out of a situation and how much of it is the way that the system supports certain individuals and doesn't support others. Yeah, because there's it's not one or the other. I think sometimes we get into that thinking of, well, it's just about you or it's, you know, it's a combination. I grew up with that whole like bootstrap mentality of pulling yourself up. First of all, that phrase originated to show that that was physically impossible method of pulling yourself out of a bad situation. And it got twisted in the 1920s and it became the opposite of what it was supposed to intend. And so like, if you look at the origins of what bootstrap theology is about, it's actually diametrically opposed to what the originators of that phrase meant. But to that point, there were things that I was able to do, you know, those initial steps, those creating boundaries, those separating myself from toxic situations recognizing that the situation that I was in, that I was playing the part of the victim and I didn't want to. But there are other things that benefited me that I had no actual part in. I am a fairly well-spoken white woman. I don't have an accent. I came from a Christian background. I have a certain work ethic. I present myself a certain way. I'm a good mom. You know, so there's like these things where if you're looking at me and you see that I am working towards financial stability, you're going to be more welcome to hiring me or bringing me on or supporting me in some way. Society would automatically gravitate towards believing my story. If I had an accent, if I wore a hijab, if I were black, if I were Hispanic, those same opportunities may not have been presented to me. I may not have been able to crawl out the social stigmas would have been different. And so I recognized that, yeah, my story, there's a lot of hard stuff. There was a lot of crap. It took a lot of work. It was painful, but it could have been worse. And so when I am working in the community, I try to also keep in mind that for everything that I do know and all the experiences that I have had, there's this whole world out there that I haven't. And so I want to greet those individuals with as much empathy, understanding, open-heartedness as humanly possible, because I will never know what it's like to have their experience. Wow. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think we just don't get it. And in some ways, I guess that's been comforting not to get it because it would be even harder. And, and so kind of for you just to have the 
ability to say like, yeah, I had a really tough, but I know in working with some people that it could have been worse. And, and for that matter, some people have it worse. And so I'm, I'm not only just thinking about my own experience, but kind of expanding it to what if I did have those limited opportunities? You know, what if people weren't rooting for me to be successful? Cause I think that's part of it too, is if you fall into, you know, one of those categories where people aren't so invested in you, it can be really tough. So, wow. Okay. Well, thank you for commenting. Cause I, I think we forget that sometimes if we haven't experienced it. And so just to kind of bring that up, what would you say, you know, so to people listening today, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground. It's inspiring to me how you kind of look at all this stuff. What would you tell people maybe listening today who are saying we're into the pandemic, we're hopefully coming out. What do I do next? Or, or what's your next? What would you tell those people as we close today? I think if you're in the thick of it, first of all, don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to utilize the programs that are in your community. That's what they're there for. Don't be embarrassed. Don't let your pride starve you. Do what you need to do. Utilize those services. There's so many people that are in this situation right now. So don't be afraid of that. It doesn't make you a bad person. You might learn something about yourself. Reach out, ask for help. People want to help. There's a lot of us who are in this industry who are in this industry because we lived it. So ask for help. Don't be afraid of that. If you are finally coming out of that, Please, for the love of God, don't forget what you learned in this time. Because for everyone whose employment situation is finally getting back on track, or their life is finally getting back on track, the unemployment situation in this country is going to affect our economy easily for 10 years. We saw this with the recession in 2008 and 2009. Some of the families who experienced that, including myself, we're just now getting back on track. We're just now being able to dig out of that debt or those credit issues or put money in savings to feel safe again financially. And some communities, it's going to take a lot longer because they didn't have that savings and resource to fall back on or they don't have a family support. So as we move forward, if things are getting better for you, how can you help your community? because it's gonna take a long time to dig out of it and we only do it by digging out together. We do it a lot faster if we do it together. That is well said. So much wisdom, so much wisdom in that. Really, I'm honored to have had you on the show today. So I just, I thank you for that. In the notes, I will link to all your stuff so that people can find it and find ways to help out. And we'll go from there, but thank you so much for being on today, I appreciate it. Thanks Jason, have a great day. Hey everyone, Jason Van Ruler here again. Wanted to check in and just say I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. At the end of every interview, I sit down for a couple of minutes with my journal and my pen and I write down what I took away from that. And I have to tell you, I mean, this season I have taken away so much. It's just like I'm learning. This is like a huge education for me. And so I hope it is for you too and that you're enjoying the show so far. If you are, now might be a good time for me to tell you a little bit about my goal for 2021, which is to help a thousand people realize their what's next. And so if you're like me and you want to help other people do that, I'd ask, could you leave a positive review if you're liking the show or subscribe or even maybe share that? I think the more that we share this information and get it out, the more people see that they can do it too. 
Lastly, thanks for listening. This show has been such a blessing in my life. I could not have imagined how this would have gone in this journey. And so I just thank you for being part of it. Thank you.